All right. Well, good morning, Bridge family. And uh, if you got your Bibles, go ahead and open up to two passages, not just one, two passages. Turn over to John chapter two and Luke. Put a marker. Turn to John two. Put a marker by Luke five. Um, I'm a little, <coughs> a little under the weather today, which puts me in a, a conundrum. Jana thinks my voice sounds sexy, but she won't touch me, and so it's like there's a this is. <laughs> You know, immovable object. I can't remember how the you guys know how that works. But man, just want to welcome you guys uh, to our services today, and just so honored um, that you're here. We are today uh, launching a new series. I'm going to get to that here in a second. Um, but right now, uh, I need to celebrate something that's going on at Life Our Church. So really quick, um, right now, a couple, couple things going down. One, guys, we are only three weeks away from the launch of our Columbia campus. Are you kidding me? Three weeks. So that's going, on, that's going on right now. Uh, now, hey, here's what's happening. I need to have like a, a little bit of a family meeting, okay? So family meeting for our, our Bridge fam. Um, you guys know how uh, we've said that like, man, when a family gets pregnant, there's a little bit of time where it's like, it's all about the baby. Uh, you reverse engineer your budget, your schedule, er- everything's reverse engineered from baby. And then there comes that moment um, where when, uh, when mama's getting, baby's getting ready to come, um, you pack the bags, right? It could come in today. You pack the bags. They're in the hall. Uh, you plan the route. You know, how we drive into the hospital. Who's going where? Well, here's what I need to do. I need us to have that conversation right now of how we drive into the hospital and who's going where. Okay, so here's what we need. One, I need you to celebrate this with me. Last week, we crossed the 200 adults committed to volunteer teams in Columbia, Mark. That happened last week. That's amazing, man. Yeah, dude. We're really excited about that. Um, but here's what we need. So we're good there. Check mark. Okay. Now here's what we need next. In order for us to launch those services in Columbia in a way that they all feel really good and uh, just launch with critical mass. Um, here's what we're looking for. We're looking for one. Actually, go ahead and do this. Grab this card on the seat in front of you. Just grab this dude. Do it right now. You can just boost my self-esteem. Go ahead and grab it. Grab that guy. Make me feel good. And uh, we're looking for two things. One, you'll see on the back. We're looking for 100 people from the Spring Hill campus to commit to attending the Columbia campus just for the first six weeks. So we're asking you to take a field trip. That's all we're asking, uh, just to help us make sure those services feel really good. So if you'd be willing to do that, you can just check that top box there uh, on on this little card. That'd help us out a ton. Uh, Or if you're like, man, uh, that's a long drive for us, or man, that's not for us. Here's the other thing you could do, okay? We are sending about 20% of our Spring Hill Campus Bridge Kids Ministry team to Columbia to launch that campus. Here's the other thing you could do that'd be amazing. Uh, If you'd be willing to help us uh, by serving in Bridge Kids just for the first six weeks after the Columbia Campus launch, that would help us tremendously. So just six weeks, give us a little runway. If you'd be willing to do that, just check that bottom box there uh, and uh, fill that guy out and then drop it at one of the uh, gray boxes uh, that are next to the doors as you leave. That help us tremendously. So not everybody can do everything, but everybody can do something and we need you. So that, that's happened in three weeks and uh, we're pretty excited about it, okay? Now, here's where we are today. We are launching um, a new series today. I'm kind of excited about but This series is gonna take us all the way up to Easter. Can't believe we're talking about Easter. It's gonna take us all the way up to Easter. Uh, and the title of the series is grave robber. And here's where this comes from. Today, I'm going to preach the first sign of Jesus from the Gospel of John. It's when Jesus turns the water into wine at Cana. Now, <clears throat> I would be totally remiss to preach this passage 
without getting in at least one Christian alcohol joke. Okay. So do you guys want it? Do you want this? You want that? Okay. Some of us are like, yes. Some of us are like, no, I don't. Uh, so here, here's what's going on. So here's, here's one. I'll give you one. All right. So uh, a police officer sees a guy swerving all over the road, pulls him over and, uh, and he pull, gets up to the window and says, sir, it, it uh, really seems like you've been drinking. Have you been drinking? And the guy says, well, just water. And the officer said, well, sure smells like wine. To which the guy responds, well, the Lord's done it again. See, that's it. That's, I like that one. So then the officer says, well, here's what I'm going to need to do. Um, I'm going to need you to, to give you a breathalyzer uh, so we can test. And the guy says, I can't do that. So the officer says, well, why not? And he says, well, I'm an asthmatic and I could die. So the officer says, well, uh, then I'll need you to take you in uh, to the police station and give you a blood test. The guy says, well, I can't do that. The officer says, why not? He says, well, I'm a hemophiliac. I could bleed to death. The officer says, okay, well, I'm going to need you to walk this straight line right here. The guy says, I can't do that. Officer says, why not? Guy says, because I'm drunk. <laughs> All right, there you go. There, so there it is. That's one. Guess what? Another one. I got a couple. I can do, okay. This is, I could do this all day. This is, this is, uh, you guys, do you know why? <laughs> should I, I should do this. Okay. Uh, you, you know why uh, you always have to invite two Baptists with you when you go fishing? <laughs> if you invite one, he'll drink all your beer. If you invite two, they won't drink any. Some of you, some of you are going to get that in a second. Some of you get that in a second. You get it now. All right, man. Hey, you Episcopalians, you got you Episcopalians love. Some of you are just now getting that one. It's it's got slow game. Uh, some of you Episcopalians, Episcopalians love this passage. Do you know why Episcopalians love this passage? Because wherever you find four Episcopalians, you're sure to find a fifth. You get it? You get it? Come on, man. That's good. That's good right there. All right. Well, here's what we're doing today. We're preaching this passage, John 2, 1 through, tw- uh, John 2, 1 through uh, 11. And let's get into it. It's one of my favorite passages in the Bible. So here we go. Here's a passage. John 2, pick up with me in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Canaan in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, real quick, where are my married men at? Married men, go ahead and raise your hand. Married men, get them. Okay, let me see you. Now, little pro tip for marriage. Never use verse four with your wife. Jesus responds, woman, what does this have to do with me? There you go. My hour has not yet come. I can just see, Jana, Josh, you need to clean up your, your dishes. Woman, my hour has not yet come. That would go great. That'd go great. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were, now I need you to bookmark this in your Bibles, okay? There were six stone jars there. Look at what they were for. For the Jewish rites of purification. We're coming back to that, okay? Each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. Now, just note this. I'm coming back to this. Some of your Bibles right here say master of the feast. Some of your Bibles say something different. And I'm I'm coming back to that. That's important. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone... Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Now, I think everybody understands why he said this. Everybody understand? 
He, he's just driving to the fact, some of you are very familiar with this. When a party starts, you're drinking something that needs a cork. And when it ends, you're probably drinking something that comes out of a box. That's, he's driving at that mentality. So he's saying, once everybody's drunk a little bit, and they, you know, got a little buzz going on. That's when a natty light comes out. And he's saying, Jesus, you did the opposite. You saved the very best until now. Okay. And this is what this, the first of his signs. Now just bookmark this word. I'm done with alcohol jokes. It makes you uncomfortable. This is note the word signs here. That's a very important word. Why does it say signs, not miracles? Jesus did it. Canaan in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him, okay? Now, let me just tell you, this passage makes me fall in love with the Bible all over again, okay? Now, let me explain what's going on in this passage. There's a lot going on here. First of all, I pointed out to you, did you notice that Jesus, it, it, John uses the word sign, not miracle? And this is really interesting. Throughout the entire gospel of John, he never uses the word miracle. He really only uses the word sign, to refer to all of Jesus' miracles. Why is he doing this, okay? Now, let me, I wanna drill this into your heads because this lays the structure for this entire sermon series, all right? Why the word signs, all right? Well, let me show you. Um, a lot of you guys know uh, every year, uh, my family and I, we drive 18 hours up to upstate New York um, to visit my grandfather that lives on a farm around Ithaca. Um, now, uh, if you've ever driven 18 hours in a minivan with two children under five, not awesome. Not awesome. Uh, we don't fly uh, because we, we're not, we can't, we're just not going to buy four plane tickets up there. So every year, 18 hours in a minivan straight with two uh, young kids. Now, there's a, a moment on our trip every year where the entire van bursts out into applause. And we burst out into applause when we see this sign, okay? We see the sign, Village of Dryden, the entire van erupts in applause, we all scream and shout, and we're excited because this is the sign that is showing us that we've arrived, that we've gotten to the place where my grandfather lives. Now, I want you to imagine this, okay? Little, little mental case study. What if we drove 18 hours up to Dryden, New York? We got to this sign that's about 1.2 miles from my grandfather's house. And instead of going to grandfather's house, we stopped the van, got out of the van, we all formed a circle around this sign and just stayed at the sign for six days, just staring at the sign and enjoying the sign and spending time with the sign. Okay. If we did that, you would think my family was insane. You know why you'd think my family was insane? Here's why. Because the purpose of a sign is to point away from itself to something else. See a a sign, you call it a sign. A sign isn't the thing. A sign is the thing that points to the thing. A sign is designed, listen, is designed to point to something significant, significant. The gospel of John, when it calls Jesus miracle signs, it's saying the purpose of these signs is to point to something significant about who Jesus was, what Jesus actually came to do and to accomplish. Now, in this passage, that's what's happening. Jesus is revealing something about who he real, not who your Sunday school teacher said that he was. Not who the church you grew up in said he was. He's revealing something about who Jesus says that he was. Now, this is so interesting to me. I want you to think about this, okay? Why is it that for Jesus' first sign, he does not raise somebody from the dead? He does not heal a leper. Uh, For Jesus' very first sign, he doesn't preach a powerful sermon. 
for Jesus' very first sign, he makes 150 gallons of, of angry orchard at a party. Why? Why is this the first one of Jesus' signs? Okay, here's what's going on here. A lot of us, here's what we, we can't understand what's going on in this passage in 21st century America because we don't understand the cultural context. You see, their weddings in Jesus' culture were very different than our weddings. We have weddings that last, you know, an hour, uh, you know, that kind of thing. Their weddings would last seven days. In ancient Near East, they had weddings that last seven. Doesn't that sound terrible? That sounds really terrible to me. Seven day long weddings. And what would happen is they didn't just invite their families. They would invite the entire city to every wedding. And it was even embedded into their legal culture. So for instance, there were cities in Jesus region where you could be legally prosecuted if you failed to provide the correct type of party and the correct type of food and the correct type of wine. Uh, it was the, of the utmost embarrassment uh, to run out of the feast that they were supposed to throw for seven days. Now, here's what's also interesting. Do you guys remember when uh, you read the passage? I told you to look at your Bible. Uh, the ESV says there was a guy, there, a guy there called the master of the feast. Uh, We don't have somebody like that in American weddings. Here's who the master of the feast was. It was a person whose job was just to keep the party going. Uh, An MC, it was a host that was hired to host the feast that would last all seven days. And it was the job of the master of the feast to make sure that everybody had a blast and that everybody had enough. That was the job of the master of the feast. Now, Some of your Bibles, if you look down at your Bibles, some of your Bibles call this guy the ruler of the table. Uh, If your Bible translates the Greek very literally, uh, your Bible may say the Lord of the feast. That's what they called him, the Lord of the feast. So it was his job to make sure everybody had enough and everybody had a blast. Now, question class. In this story, who ends up being the true Lord of the feast? Jesus. Jesus. Now think about this. What is Jesus revealing about who he is? Um, Some of you guys, you've grown up in spiritual contexts where you grew up knowing Jesus as uh, as the Lord of the guilt. You've known a Jesus who was the Lord of the guilt, and it was his job uh, just to walk around all the time and point out to you all the things that you've done wrong and all the areas where you fall short. Um, I've known uh, Christian little subcultures where it seemed like uh, whoever had the biggest guilt complex was the best Christian. Guys, you understand, uh, Jesus does not, Christians aren't supposed to walk around feeling guilty all the time. We're supposed to walk around feeling forgiven all the time. So some of you have known that. You've known a Jesus who is a Lord of the guilt. Some of you, you've grown up knowing a Jesus that was a Lord of the fear. That uh, Jesus' job, you just spent your entire life in this paranoia that you're always doing something wrong or you're never doing enough or or that you're, you're certain you're doing something right now that's making God very angry. And you've known a Jesus who was a Lord of the fear. I'll give you another one. Some of you guys have grown up and you have known a Jesus who was a Lord of the hate. That Jesus' job was to draw a line in the sand and the good guys are on that side and the bad guys are on that side and it's the job of the good guys to hate the bad guys. Um, One of my favorite quotes is is from a, a female Christian author named Anne Lamott. Anne Lamott says, you know that you've successfully created God in your own image when it turns out he hates all the same people you do. See, some of you have known that God. A Jesus who is a Lord of the hate. Do you know what Jesus is saying in this passage? Jesus is saying, here's who I am. I'm the Lord of the feast. I came. Here's, he's saying, yes, 
Yes, I came to bring self-denial. Yes, I came to bring codes of conduct. Yes, I came to bring a humbling of the proud. But here's what I ultimately came to do. I came to bring beauty from ashes, to turn your mourning into dancing, your sorrow into joy. I came to turn your wine into water. He's a Jesus who came. He's saying, I came to set the world on fire with joy unspeakable and full of glory. That's what I came to do. And in fact, if you read your Bibles all the way to the end of the book of Revelation, what you're going to see is that that is what Jesus is driving all of human history towards, an unending feast of unspeakable glory. That's who Jesus is. Um, one of my favorite uh, Bible teachers, a guy named Russell Moore, one time he uh, summarized the Christian life in one sentence, and this is how he chose to summarize it. He said, here's a Christian life. Let us eat, drink, and be merry, for yesterday we were dead. Now, let me ask you this question. Have you ever known a Jesus like that? Do you know that Jesus? Do you know the Jesus who's the Lord of the feast? If not, you need to adjust your Jesus. Okay? Um, let me give an example of this because this, it's, it's, it's like disorienting for, for people. Here's an example of this. Um, when I was growing up, I heard a Christian speaker, a guy named Tony Campolo. Uh, Tony Campolo is a, a Christian sociologist that taught at a, a university, uh, but he would travel and speak at these Christian conferences. And he tells a story of a, one time he was called to speak at a place out in Hawaii, poor, poor guy, and uh, goes out. And uh, if, you, if you've ever traveled that far away, you guys know Hawaii is a six-hour time difference. So he wakes up at three in the morning, and he's hungry. And uh, he gets up, and he's like, just starts walking around Honolulu, trying to find some place um, that's open for him to eat. And uh, the only place that's open is uh, a tiny little seedy, dirty, disgusting diner. So he walks in. The only guy there is a, a bartender named Harry. He orders a donut. Harry grabs a little greasy donut, hands it to him, and says, you know, it tells him his name. About 10 minutes later, he said, he's there, and six Honolulu prostitutes walk into the bar next to him. And uh, he is there, and they're talking very loudly. And there was one prostitute, her name was Agnes, who was louder than all of the other ones. And uh, they're sitting there, and she just, she turns to one of the ladies next to her, and she just says, hey, it's my birthday tomorrow. And the girl next to her is almost offended and sort of snaps back, well, what do you want me to do about it? You know, uh, you want me to get you a present? You know, sort of sarcastically. And uh, she, he said that she was a little hurt. And she said, no, 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 no. I, I'm just saying I'm going to be 39 tomorrow. And, uh, and then she said, I'm just saying it. I don't expect a party. And then she said, I've never had a birthday party in my whole life. I don't expect one tomorrow. Um, they sat there for about an hour and then they left. And Tony Campolo turned to Harry, the bartender, and he said, did you know those ladies? I said, yeah, yeah, they're in here every night at three. And Tony said that he had an idea. He said to Harry, let's tomorrow night, let's throw Agnes a birthday party. And uh, Harry said, you know what? That's an amazing idea. Winner, let's do it. And so that night he said he went to, to Kmart and he bought the banners and, uh, and the cake and the candles and the decorations. Came in the next night, 2.15 a.m., and starts decorating. He said uh, Harry had gone out and invited every prostitute in Honolulu. So he, so he said about, about 2.30, they all start filing in. By 3 o'clock, he said it was just me, the preacher, wall-to-wall prostitutes. That's all that was there. And so 3 o'clock, they're all there, birthday parties ready, candles, cake, everything. And he said at about 3.15, Agnes walked in by herself, and the place erupted. Happy birthday, Agnes. 
And they all started singing, happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you. And uh, she responded the opposite way that they would thought. They said as soon as they started singing, her knees buckled, and she fell to the floor sobbing. And uh, somebody went over to her, and Harry grabbed her by the shoulders, brought her up to the birthday cake, and he said, Agnes, just pull yourself together, you know, blow, blow out your candles, that kind of thing. And, uh, and she tried it, she couldn't, so Harry, according to the story, Harry blows out the candles himself, and then he handed her the knife, and he said, now, Agnes, it's time to cut your cake. Uh, and she, through tears, she said, please no, please no. She said, um, do we have to eat it right now? And they said, well, no. And she said, please, I've never had a birthday cake in my whole life, uh, and I just want to keep this one for a little while. And then she said, um, I live right down the block. Can I just take this home and keep it? And so she silently got up with her birthday cake and left, and uh, there was this long, awkward silence. And so Tony Campolo, preacher, he turned to the room of prostitutes and he said, you know what? Let's pray. And they all bowed their head and uh, he led them in a prayer for Agnes. And he prayed that God would be good to Agnes and that he would change her life and that she might come to know him. Um, And he prayed for God to protect her from the men who had done horrible things to her uh, for years and years and years. And he said, uh, as soon as he finished praying, uh, he lifted up his head, and Harry said, you didn't tell me you was a preacher. <laughs> he didn't tell me that. He said, what, what kind of preacher are you? What kind of church do you belong to? And in what I believe was an inspired response, Tony Campolo said, uh, I belong to the kind of church that throws birthday parties for whores at three in the morning. And Harry said, no, you don't. <laughs> no, you don't. He said, there's no church like that. If there was a church like that, I'd belong to it. And do you guys know why that man in Honolulu at 3.30 in the morning said that? Because he had never been introduced to the Lord of the feast. He had never known a Jesus who did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world, John 3.17. And Jesus here, that's what he's saying. He's saying, do you want to know who I really am? I'm the Lord of the feast. I will turn your mourning into dancing. I will, let you, I will let you loose like a lamb loose from the stall. No matter what's going on around you, I'm going to create a feast in you. That's what Jesus came to do. Now, here's what I love about this passage. Here's why this passage makes me fall in love with the Bible all over again. Because it's not just what Jesus came to do, it tells us how. Let me me ask you this earlier. I asked you this earlier. What is the deal with the six water jars for purification? Why does Jesus choose to put the wine in those? We all know they've been drinking for days. (laughs) You know, we know they had other vessels in which Jesus could have put the wine. So why these six stone water jars, okay? Let me just point something out to you. Uh, If you don't know this about ancient Judaism, there is a tremendous uh, amount of of material in the Bible about uh, ritual cleanness and uncleanness. A huge sections of the Old Testament. If you do these things, then they'll make you unclean. So for instance, uh, the, the food you ate could make you unclean. Uh, Anything that you touched that was unclean, if a clean thing touched an unclean thing, the clean thing became unclean. Uh, Bodily fluids that you emitted could make you unclean. Any type of sickness or skin disease uh, could make you unclean. Leprosy could make you unclean. Any time that you sinned or transgressed against God's holy law, that would make you unclean. 
So what this did, every time a Jewish person became unclean, they would have to travel all the way back to this place and approach these jars, and they'd wash. And over and over and over and over again, they'd wash. So much so, it was almost like their whole life was just a washing ritual. So for instance, every morning when they woke up, a Jewish person would wash before every single meal. They would have to wash after every meal. They would have to wash before every religious ceremony they'd wash. Anytime they contacted anything unclean with their hands, they'd have to wash. Every time they sinned, they'd have to come back to these exact same water jars and wash over and over and over. So why, let me ask you, why is it that Jesus turns to these stone jars and he chooses to put the wine there? Do you guys know why? Jesus is looking at these jars and he's saying, you're not going to be needing these anymore. I'm getting ready to do something that will do for you what these jars could never do for you. I'm going to clean you in a way these could never clean you. In fact, these could clean the outside. I'm going to clean the inside. These could clean you temporarily. I will make you clean forever. You're not going to be needing these anymore. The time for washing is over. The time for feasting has come. Jesus is here. That's what he's saying. That's why he chooses these things. Now, listen, this might not resonate or vibe with some of you in the room. Some of you right now might not vibe with the need to be made clean, but there are many people who are in this room who do. Um, I read a, a British uh, study this week that um, I've always known this. I'm a pastor uh, in counseling and therapy with people. Victims of abuse, degradation, assault, or humiliation, they almost always describe the feeling of it leaving them dirty or stained. Those are the words they always used. Dirty or stained. This British study from some psychologists is what it said. The affected person develops strong feelings of contamination that are evoked by direct contact with the violator or indirect contacts such as memories, images, or reminders of the violation. There are some of you here who, because of either something you have done or something that some wicked person did to you, you have spent your entire life feeling dirty or unclean. And here's what Jesus is saying. I told you earlier to put your finger in Luke 5. Turn there. Turn there. Um, This is a story, so let me just read it. I want to show you what's going on here. So this is Luke 5. Now remember, I've already pointed this out to you. If you had a skin disease or leprosy, that made you unclean. So here's, here's what happens here. While he, Jesus, was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. This man's full of uncleanness. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Some of you might feel that in your heart right now. I just need somebody to make me clean. Is there any way for me to be clean again? And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. I'm coming back to this word, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Now that is a staggering passage. Here's what's going on here, all right? So this man's full of leprosy. That means he would have had to live in his own leper commune away from all the clean people. He would never have been allowed to come in contact with things that were clean. In fact, he would have had to, anytime he was in a city with other clean people, he would have had to put his hand over his mouth and shout a warning ahead of him, unclean, 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 so that crowds could part and everyone could make sure they didn't touch the disgusting, unclean man. This man probably hadn't been touched in years. And Jesus approaches him. And the passage says, 
In English, he touched him. That's not the word it uses in Greek. The word, the word in Greek is he embraced him. You know what Jesus did? Jesus hugged this man. He hugged him. Why did Jesus hug him? Um, he hugged him because there was a principle in the Old Testament. Here was the Old Testament principle. In the Old Testament, <clears throat> the unclean makes the clean unclean. So if, if an unclean thing touches a clean thing, the clean thing becomes unclean. Okay? But in the New Covenant, Jesus says, I came to bring a new principle. Here's the principle of the New Covenant. In the New Covenant, a clean thing makes the unclean things clean. He's saying, that's what I came to do. And I am cleanness itself. If I touch you, you'll become clean. Do you understand? The clean in Jesus is stronger than the unclean in you. That's what Jesus is saying in this passage. Now listen, it's, not, it's more than that. Okay, I'm going to even go a, a level deeper. Did you notice, a lot of times when you read this passage, people wonder, why is Jesus so rude to his mom? Uh, but he's a woman. What does this have to do with me? And in fact, there's some Bible translations that try to soften Jesus' rudeness. If you're holding the NIV, the nearly inspired version, <clears throat> it says, uh, the NIV actually inserts the word dear. It says, dear woman, what is it? Because they're trying to soften it. That word, dear is not in the passage. They just inserted it because they thought Jesus sounded rude. Do you know why Jesus sounds rude? Because he kind of is. Uh, one Bible scholar this week that I read said, in this moment, Jesus stepped out of being Mary's son and stepped in to being Mary's Lord. And that's why he speaks so directly with her. Now, let me ask you this question. Why is Jesus irritable? Why so emotional? He's at this party. He's getting ready to make wine. Why is he emotional here? Okay. Let me say something a little sensitive. Nobody freak out on me. Do you guys know, uh, have you ever noticed that single people who have been single for a long time can be a little emotional at weddings? Have you ever noticed that? That's an awkward moment in the room. I understand. Um, I, I got a, uh, it, is, it can be emotional. It can be a little irritable. Uh, I got a, a buddy who's a, a pastor. He had a, a single friend in his church who was single and a little older. And uh, every time he would go to weddings, the little old ladies in his church would walk up to him, pat him on the head and say, hey, don't worry. You're next. You're next. And he finally just got so fed up with it that he uh, attended the, uh, the church's next funeral and walked up to those same old ladies, <laughs> patted them on the head, say, you're next. You're next. You know, that kind of thing. Well, listen, it's just a thing. Do you know why that is? That for some single people, weddings can be a little emotional hard. Do you know why? Because they're at this wedding, but they're thinking about another wedding. They're at your wedding thinking about the, their wedding or the wedding they, they wish they may have. Do you guys know why Jesus is a little emotional in this passage? Because he's at this wedding, but he's thinking about another wedding. See, in the book of Revelation, Revelation says that when Jesus returns and we're reunited with him, we won't be reunited with him just as a servant with their master. And we won't be reunited with him just as a son with a father. The Bible says we'll be reunited with him like a bride with a bridegroom. And Jesus is here and he's thinking about that day. And he's emotional because he's thinking about what it's going to take for him to be able to be united with us without us having any spot or wrinkle or any such blemish. He knows that he is going to have to drink a cup that we did not want to drink in order for us to be his forever with no sin in the picture. Um, when Jesus went to the cross, what he was doing is he was drinking the cup of God's wrath 
so that you could drink the cup of God's joy forever. And that's what he's thinking about here. Um, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, it's 2 Corinthians 5.21. Here's what it says. It says, God made him who knew no sin, listen, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Um, a lot of times when Christians talk about that passage, we don't realize how visceral what that passage means is. So let me just say this really bluntly for you. And this might be hard for some of you to hear. What that means is that when Jesus went to the cross, he became every unclean thing about you. When Jesus went to the cross and hung on the cross, he was becoming a porn addict. Jesus became a cheating spouse. Jesus became a bitter, unforgiving wife. He became an emotionally absent father. Jesus became a sex offender. Jesus became a gossip. At the cross, Jesus became a rebellious teenager who has disappointed their parents more times than they can possibly count. Jesus became a serial liar. Jesus became every unclean thing that you have ever done or ever become. Do you know why? So that in him you might become the righteousness of God. He traded his cleanness for your uncleanness so that you could trade your uncleanness for his cleanness forever. That's good news, real good news. Now listen, some of you are here right now and you've been around the bridge for a few weeks and you're starting to realize that, man, uh, I need to cross a line of faith. I, there is uncleanness in my life that I need the Lord to deal with. Um, if that's you and you're in that spot and you're realizing you need to cross a line of faith uh, for the first time, would you just pray with me real quick? If you could just bow your heads, close your eyes, just ask everybody to pray with me. And if that's you and you're realizing, man, I do, I, I need to cross a line and, and come to the Lord. Just pray this with me right now. Just pray to him from an earnest heart. Father, I know that I have not lived a clean life. I know that I have done unclean things, that I have not lived for you first, and I have loved things besides you more than you. And I admit and confess that that was wrong. But Father, I believe that you sent your son to take the penalty for all of my sins, and that at the cross, Jesus took everything that I have done so that I could take everything that Jesus earned, heaven and glory. And Father, I receive that gift from you as a free gift today, not dependent on anything that I have done or anything that I will do, but as a free gift, I receive your forgiveness. From this day forward, I commit to loving you as best I can and living for you first in my life as best I can. Thank you for adopting me as a son or daughter of the living God in the name of Christ. Amen. I'm just trying to keep your eyes closed, heads bowed, eyes closed. And just real quick, um, here in a second, um, if you pray that prayer to cross that line for the first time in your life, here in a second, I'm just going to ask you to slip your hand in there. Um, No one's going to see that. Uh, I'm going to ask you to do that because I believe something solidifies in you spiritually when you respond physically. So if you cross that line today, um, on the count of three, would you just slip your hand in the air so that I know who I'm praying for? On on the count of three, one, God loves you. Two, you can be clean again. Three, just slip your hand in the air right now. Amen. 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 
Yep, I keep them high. Yes, thank you. Amen. All right, you guys can put those down. Bridge family, open your eyes. And guys, can we celebrate 11 people that trusted Christ and crossed the line of faith today? Amen, amen, amen. But Bridge family, right now, he is the Lord of the feast. Right now, let's lift our voices to sing to him and the table that he has set for us. Sing with me.